morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. You'll find it on page 737 in your pew Bibles. 737, and we are going to be spending... Can you uh, turn me down ever so slightly? So it doesn't be back. Thank you. Uh, we are going to be spending five weeks in the book of Daniel. Uh, before I begin, I'll just let you know why five weeks, seeing as the book of Daniel is actually rather long. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about the historical narrative in Daniel, not the uh, prophetic nature of Daniel. So we're going to be dealing with the stories of Daniel from a narrative historical viewpoint. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, Mainly because if I was to, to preach through the prophetic version, uh, sort of part of Daniel, we would get bogged down for probably a good year. Um, I don't know if you guys have the, uh, the, the patience with me for, for an entire year-long sermon series. Uh, so, uh, and so instead of doing that, I'm going to focus more on the, the person of Daniel and his historical place. Now, what you need to know right off the bat about the book of Daniel is that this is, believe it or not, a highly controversial book of the Bible. Did you know that? Highly controversial. In fact, it was uh, about this close to being cutting, uh, to be cut out of the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, when they looked at it, they almost decided uh, not to include it because of its messianic prophecies at the end being claimed by the, the Christian uh, movement. And so when they were when they were trying to get get together, uh, they almost cut this book of the Bible completely gone. And even so, if you were to read through a Hebrew scripture, you would not find the book of Daniel in the prophetic section. You would actually find it in the writing section in the wisdom literature. Meaning that the, uh, from a Jewish standpoint, they don't actually believe this to be a fact or uh, something that actually happened. To them, it's more of an allegory. It's more of a tale or a, uh, a, a life lesson, if you will. And so it's actually in wisdom literature for them, not in the book of prophecy. For us as Christians, it's 100% part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, it is in the major prophets for us. Uh, the, the prophets for the Christian Bible are split into two sections, major prophets and minor prophets. Um, it's not like baseball when you get the professionals and the not-so-professionals. It's uh, to do with length. And so because of how many chapters are in Daniel, it fits into the major prophets. If it had less chapters, it would fit into the minor prophets. And so that's sort of the, uh, the, the background, if you will. We're going to get into a little bit more uh, of the background, historical background of Daniel. But I wanted you to know uh, about, specifically, uh, the book of the Bible, that it's a little bit controversial to some people. Some people don't know exactly what to do with Daniel. Something that we'll, we'll discover here as we're reading through is that uh, even though this is talking about Daniel, it's actually recorded in the third-person narrative. It's not a first-person narrative, so it's not Daniel saying, I did this, it's someone saying that Daniel did this. And so it's a little bit different, and so uh, if you are willing to go with me here, not that you have much of a choice because we're doing it anyway, um, we're going to learn more about Daniel. Now, our five weeks uh, all have different themes based on standing. So this week we're going to be looking at standing out for God, and we're going to look at how Daniel and his friends stood out for God. Next week we're going to look up, uh, look at stand for what's right. The week after, stand for what matters. 
the week after that, stand against, and the final sermon will be stand with. So, are you with me so far? Let's start Daniel. So, if you have your Bibles, again, Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, uh, and we're going to read scripture here together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when I was growing up, uh, I actually had songs about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not sure if you guys did camp songs, if you heard any of them. Um, they weren't nice songs, because Nebuchadnezzar's not a nice guy. Uh, something that you need to know about the book of Daniel is it's heavily rooted in the historical background of the Middle East. Nebuchadnezzar was a real king, uh, but evidence is found outside of scripture that he reigned at a particular time and did particular stuff. His invasion of Jerusalem is a historical fact. It's not just a, a narrative story we get from the Bible. Uh, there is outside evidence of Nebuchadnezzar and his reign. Um, he was king of Babylon, as it says here. At this point, Babylon was a massive empire. It was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. It was bigger than the kingdom of Egypt uh, at this point in its both wealth and area of influence. Uh, they had conquered most of the known world. And while there were little empires starting to spring up on either side, Babylon was the center of power for the known world. It was the place that everyone went. It was the center of trade. It was the center of military might. It was the center of economic might. It was a big deal. And this character Nebuchadnezzar is largely responsible for its influence and affluence throughout the world. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets his eyes on Jerusalem. He says, I am going to conquer the nation of Israel. Now, you'll note here in uh, verse 1 that it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, Jehoiakim is a real king. You can find more of his story in the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible. But Jehoiakim uh, was a Mildly. I could spend an entire sermon series just on the bad kings of Israel, uh, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the basics is this. God gave the nation of Israel time after time, and opportunity after opportunity to repent and to come back into the worship of him and his name, and they didn't. And so, uh, actually, if you read through the book of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the prophet actually prophesied that Babylon's going to come in and destroy them if the nation of Israel doesn't get their act together. They didn't get their act together, and so the king of Babylon comes in and destroys the nation of Israel. Uh, in that destruction, it included not only the city of Jerusalem being destroyed, but also the temple of God being destroyed. So, if you that Hezekiah came up with uh, through his inspiration of the Holy Spirit was also that the uh, items of the temple, the, the, the consecrated holy items that were used in worship, those as well were going to be carried off into captivity. And what scripture records in just a little bit is that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, he also grabbed all of those holy instruments of God and took them into Babylon and put them in the temples of his people. Um, 
he humiliated God's people by taking their faith. Now you need to understand what this means. If Israel thinks their God is the biggest and the best God there possibly is, surely that God is going to protect them. And so Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying the temple, the place where God resides, destroying the city which God elected to put there, and carrying off God's people into exile, that humiliates the nation of Israel in their worship of the one true God. But what's interesting is that humiliation actually comes from the will of God himself, because the people had gone away from the worship of his name. I find it interesting, maybe you don't, but I do. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So, that is the sort of historical background. That's what's going on in the book of Daniel. You have uh, Jerusalem, they've gone off the rails. Again, God is disciplining them by having them being captured. The temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, most of its people are wiped out. Those who haven't been wiped out are carried off into exile, and this is the beginning of what's called the Babylonian exile. Uh, and so that's the historical background. So we're going to pick it up, our story here, in verse 3. So this is Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, before I move on to the next wouldn't that be a nice Facebook profile? <laughs> I am a youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and learn a couple of different languages. Like, wouldn't that be like, these are good people, right? Like, these are smart people. These are, like, I don't know, like, this is, this is Israel's next top model. Like, this is what these kids are. They are the future of the nation of Israel. They are the best that the nation has to offer, remembering that their entire uh, people have been decimated through this attack, and they are the best of the best of the best. And I would really love you to look at what they're doing is they're going to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, in case I haven't really driven that point on, these were some good-looking guys. Like, these were good-looking guys. Without blemish, without fault, both in physical appearance but also in intellect and wisdom. They were smart. Now, if you picked up on that, there's something that King Nebuchadnezzar, through his chief eunuch, is trying to do here. He's trying to alter the way that they think, the way that they behave, and ultimately what they believe. What the king is doing is indoctrinating the people of Jerusalem 
into thinking and acting, behaving and believing like the Babylonians. Now, if it, it's interesting that uh, when you really think about it, not much has changed. This is still the preferred method of dictators when they conquer different people. In fact, there's parallels that can be drawn to Nazi Germany and the way that Germans, uh, when they conquered people, the way that they indoctrinated the people that they conquered, the way that their own people were indoctrinated to believe um, some of the lies that Hitler believed. Uh, indoctrination is the first key in, to, uh, in, in taking over and wiping out people. Get people to believe what you believe, to, to think the way that you think, and to do the way that you do. Now, what's really interesting is, even in a modern context, this is still the same. People get indoctrinated through media, through ads and marketing, and through music. Um, I had some friends growing up, they started listening to rap music. Now, this is not a bad thing about rap music, because whatever. Uh, some people sing the song music, but then again, that person also blows a trumpet for a living, and I'm not really sure about that either. Uh, to be honest, um, I thought at least we could work with Greek, Timberwolves, not really music. Amen. <laughs> Just But music has the power to indoctrinate. My friends growing up, they would listen to rap music, and suddenly they started talking like the people in the music talked. They started using the language that was in that. And, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't even foul language, it wasn't even swearing. What it was, they, they started talking about their low-riding cars. And I'm like, you don't, you, you drive a minivan. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not a low-riding car. Like, why are you talking to me? Well, I can get with it. It indoctrinates you, and music is one of this wonderful thing. Now, music in itself, actual music, is not uh, does not indoctrinate people. But what indoctrinates people is the lyrics behind the music. You need to know that there's a difference there. So, uh, we believe in the Salvation Army. In fact, our uh, our founder said that there is no music that is not uh, uh, not to be used for the kingdom. That the devil isn't uh, allowed to have a single note of all the seconds. Um, is that right? Something like that. Girls agree with me, that's all I need. I'll keep going. Uh, and so music in itself is not bad or evil, but when it is used for an evil purpose, it becomes evil. Does that make sense? And so uh, we see this sort of indoctrination even today in the media that we, we consume on mass. We consume more media than any other point in history. That's both printed as well as video as well as audio. We Soon, media at every point, and if you don't believe me, we're all staring at a screen, which is media, right? We're a very visual people now, and so um, this form of indoctrination is not new, but it is something that these guys uh, really had to guard against. In fact, if before it was think, behave, and believe, today it's buy, believe, and think. What you buy changes what you believe, and what you believe changes how you think. If you believe in things, it changes almost everything about your personality. And that's what Daniel is going uh, about to go through with these people. He's, uh, everything that's, that's happening, he's going to be taught the language of the Chaldeans, he's going to be taught the religion, he's going to be taught their, uh, taught their wisdom, and it's going to change who the people of Israel and here's where it gets interesting. If 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. And this is the one that I want to focus on. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Even though the nation of Israel getting wiped out by the Babylonians was ordained by God, it is still being used for the schemes of Satan. See, Satan, uh, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, had a prophecy given against him that the seed of the woman was going to crush his head, and he knew that that seed was going to come in the line of David and through the people of Israel. And so Satan wanted to destroy, from the get-go, God's chosen people. If you want to know why wave after wave after wave of bad things happened to the Israelites, it was because Satan was spiritually attacking them because he was afraid that the seed of the woman was going to wipe him out. And so you can track that through all of Scripture up until the point where we just come off of Christmas and we see that the king, uh, wicked King Herod, tried to kill the Messiah and kill every first uh, newborn baby in Jerusalem. That was Satan's final assault because he knew that the Messiah had been born. And so what you'll see here from the book of Ephesians, if you link this into what we're reading in Daniel, is that not only is there a very physical struggle that they've been physically captured, physically taken and enslaved, but there is also a spiritual struggle that they are uh, fighting against. That their struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, not every bad thing that happens to you is a spiritual attack. However, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and following the word of God, you will come under spiritual attack. Does that make sense? And so when you get a flat tire on the way to work, that's not necessarily Satan trying to stop you from getting to work, right? Sometimes a flat tire is just a flat tire. But when you're in a family unit and someone goes off the rails and starts yelling and screaming at people, or if you are uh, uh, trying to witness to a person and they're just not hearing it and they start screaming and yelling at you and and, and rude, there is a spiritual component to driving the gospel forward. You will meet resistance. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It's almost like I've got a sermon series called Stand. This is very important in what we're talking about. When spiritual attacks come, you need to stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you stand out there by yourself without the gospel, you will be overcome and overcome quickly. You need to stand with the gospel. You need to have the gospel behind you. The word of God is a sword. Hebrews, in fact, calls it a living sword. It's a sword that is living and active and sharper than anything you can imagine able to cleave through bone and flesh and pierce into a person's spirit and soul. That's the word of God to us. And back to Daniel. So, story so far. Nebuchadnezzar has come in, he's conquered uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he's taken all of these uh, fancy, good-looking people up into captivity, he started indoctrinating them, right? That's where we are so far. Verse 6 says this, Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshah, 
Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, these kids would have been about 12 to 15 years old, right? We're not talking fully formed men, because if you've met any fully formed men, they're really stubborn, right? Okay, I've got one amen for making that, we'll take it. After a certain age, men get really stubborn. I know you're back there. Right. Carol agrees with me as well. Men get stubborn, and so they take youthness. Youth? I'm so old now. They take 12 year olds into captivity so they can indoctrinate them. If you've met any 12 year olds, they're really easy to manipulate and indoctrinate. They really are. You just tell them something and then give them positive reinforcements for the something, they'll do whatever you want. It's great. We, we trick our kids with these things called Bible box, good behavior. And eventually, the good behavior gets ingrained in them and they don't do it just for the Bible box, but they've learned good behavior. The same thing that the Babylonians are doing, but in reverse. They're teaching them bad things and giving them rewards for bad behavior. These kids are taken, uprooted from their family. Uh, they're a thousand miles away from their home. They are stripped of identity and they are crushed of any sense of dignity. They, these young guys would have been trained in uh, the way of God. They would have uh, known the Old Testament scriptures, at least the first five books of the Bible, if not some of the other writings that hadn't yet been canonized, but maybe were floating around uh, in the histories of the people of Israel. And all of that had been stripped away. They'd been taken a thousand miles from home, uh, and everything was taken away from them. Everything, absolutely. And even their names were taken away from them. And I, what's really interesting here is that they were given new names that directly went in defiance of God. So I'm going to read these out for you. So Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, became Belteshah, which means O Lady, which was the name of the wife of the god Bel. So he was renamed for one of the deities in the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, so this would be the equivalent in Greek of Hera, or in uh, the Roman mythology, Juno. Right? This is, this is who this person was. So he was, uh, Belteshah means the, the lady or the wife of the god Bel. Hananiah, whose name means the Lord is gracious, became Shadrach, which means commander of the Thu, who is the moon, their moon god. Right? Uh, who's next? Uh, Michel, who means who is what God is. This is, this is perhaps my, one of my favorite names. Who is like God is his name. Like, is there a God like my God? Is it his literal name? And he becomes Meshach, which either means I'm of little account, or who is like Aku, which is one of their gods. So his name changed from who is like my God to your God has no name, and now you must worship Aku. Are you seeing how their identities were being stripped away from them? Azariah, who means the Lord is a helper, became Abednego, which means the servant of the shining one, who is the Babylonian god of wisdom, Nebo. Everything about them was stripped away, even their names. And what's interesting is that Christians don't call those three by their, by their Hebrew names. We call them by the Babylonian names. 
you read the story of the, the fiery furnace, and it's taught to our kids as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We don't talk about their Hebrew names. I don't know. Very interesting to me. In addition to that, they have their diet changed. These kids would have been taught on certain foods. They would not have eaten certain foods. Certain foods weren't eaten off limits to them. And so uh, they are given this food by the chief eunuch. In fact, it says that they were to eat food prepared for the king and meat and wine dedicated to pagan gods. So the way that this would work is uh, the temples that were around the city, they would have taken in food and wine put it at the foot of the altars of their god, and the priests would have come in and blessed that food, and then that food would go to the king's table, and then the king's table would send it down into uh, the ranks of the king's household, including these three guys. And so uh, these four guys, rather, with Daniel as, as sort of the lead guy in our story, um, literally are given the choice of not eating or eating food prepared for idols, which is against their religion. Are you with me so far? Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the king or the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And here's something that's really interesting. These guys didn't fight the fact that they changed their names to literally blasphemous things because they knew that outward labels don't matter. However, once something came around that started the threaten to defile themselves before God, that's when they took a stand. Look, as a Christian, you're going to be called a lot of things in your life. If you've been able to get away with it for now, no one's ever called you a bad name because you're a Christian, great. That's not the track record of most people. Most people at the very limit will be called stupid for believing in Jesus. That's like the, the low end of the insults. Sometimes you'll be called a hypocrite for believing that Jesus saved you from your sins and not having your attitude changed. You can get to that later. <clears throat> Sometimes we do act as a preacher. Because we're people, and people make mistakes. It's interesting that we're not given the same grace that we give others. But when we make a mistake, as long as we say, man, I messed up, you shouldn't have done that, I'm sorry. You know, they feel You'll be given a lot of labels as a Christian, hypocritical, stupid, unthinking, uncivilized. Outside labels don't matter. What matters is what does God call you? He calls you loved one. He calls you child. He values you and loves you enough that he sent Christ to die for you. So for Daniel and the bros, he didn't, they, they didn't fight the name change because the outward labels don't matter. Verse 12, Daniel continues and says this, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, I'm stopping there. Uh, if you go online, there is something called the Daniel Diet. Okay. It's horrible. And I cannot endorse it. And I don't think the book of Daniel is endorsing it. There's some interesting things here that people like to take out of context. My wife did this diet for a brief period of time. I'm not sure how long. Uh, 
But you can clearly see there's something you've seen in here where it says that they're giving you protection against the heat. Horrible. Water to drink, no coffee. That's not anything that Jesus wants us to do. Here's the point. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll read something like this in Scripture, that Daniel is saying, hey, I want to eat vegetables and drink water, and we think, oh, look, um, it's in Scripture, therefore we need to do this too. Right? Some people do that. Just because something's in Scripture like this doesn't mean that it's for you. It's there to prove a great point. Uh, case in point, there's something in the book of, uh, in, in the Torah, in the Bible, called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, uh, Essentially, if you were to break it down, it means that you're not, never allowed to cut any hair on your head, you're not allowed to drink wine, and you're not allowed to go near dead bodies. Those were the three things the Nazarite vow said that the person wasn't allowed to do. Now, just because that's in Scripture doesn't mean that every single one of us has to take the Nazarite vow. It was a very specific thing for a specific purpose. Just like this here, they were doing something very specific for a specific purpose. If you don't eat meat, you will not get the right nutrients. And you can die. That's why vegetarians look so pathetic and tasty and point. Because they're not getting the right nutrients. Most vegetarians actually have to take supplements in order to get the right nutrients. Now, if that's good for them, it's good for them. I'm not being too judgmental. I'm just mocking them. Just for the sake of the conversation. Look, I've had half a cup of coffee. Day that Kathy doesn't bring my coffee at all, you'll fall in trouble. Just saying. This was very specific. This was a specific test. Because if you drank nothing but water for 10 days and ate nothing but vegetables for 10 days, at the end of it, you would start to look a little tasty. You would start to look a little down. Maybe you wouldn't have the amount of energy that you need. And so this was specifically a test. In verse 13, he continues and says this, Let then our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. What he's saying is, I'm, I've got a bet, I've got a wager. I'm going to eat nothing but vegetables and water, and you take the guys who uh, eat the meat and the wine, and at the end of a certain period of time, see which one of us looks better, and I can bet that it's going to be me that looks better, and that's because I am being empowered by the might and Spirit of God. It wasn't about his diet. I am fully convinced that Daniel could have stood here and said, don't give us anything to eat or drink for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, we'll still look better than these guys because we're relying on the power and might of the Spirit of God. It wasn't about the diet. It was about their heart and their faith behind the diet. It was them taking a stand for God, taking a stand for what was right and standing up before the chief eunuch and saying, we're not going to defy ourselves in our spirit for the sake of your foreign idols. We are going to stay faithful to God. And as Christians, on a daily basis, you are going to be challenged to have your faith tested by the world and you will have to stand in front of people and say, no, I am going to remain faithful to my God. And you can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through your own strength. The chief unit listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And here, look, instead of making a public 
protest, instead of like throwing up his hands and marching down the street and doing weird wonderful things, instead he chooses a non-violent way of doing it because Daniel honors the authority that he believes God has placed over his life. It might not be good authority, but it is authority appointed by God. In verse 1, it says that God gave into Nebuchadnezzar's hand Jehoiakim and the city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. That was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. Therefore, God has put Nebuchadnezzar as the authority in Daniel's life for good or for evil. That's what he has to do. And so Daniel, knowing what Scripture says about honoring the authority that God has placed over you, says he's not going to mock that authority, he's not going to derail that authority, instead he's going to submit to that authority, but he's also taking a stand. Sometimes you can take a stand in the wrong way. If you take a stand that does something to detract from the name of Christ, you are taking a stand in the wrong way. Verse 19, the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. At the end of this, they stood before the king. Verse 17 said, as for these four years, God gave them learning and still knowledge to show wisdom. And Daniel had understanding to know visions and at the end of the time, the king commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like these four. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, they found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. What's happened is that because they honored God and they had stood Firm, they had been elevated in the land, and you'll see that Daniel is placed in a position higher than everyone else in the entire empire of Babylon, and, be, and the reason he is elevated that, to that position is because he has honored God. He stood for what was right, and he did it in the right way. And the reality is, for many of us, we should be remembered for standing out rather than forgotten by name. Too many Christians just blend in. They say, I'm not going to make waves, I'm not going to uh, rock the boat, I'm just going to, to keep my head down and just do me. I'm just going to live my life the way that I want it. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm not going to make waves. The reality of Scripture is when you read Scripture, every single person in Scripture rocked the boat at one point or another. Jonah quite literally was on a rocking boat. You need to stand up for what God has called you to stand up for. Now, these situations are going to be different for every single one of you. None of you are going to have the exact same circumstance or situation, uh, which is a little bit maddening, I know. But one of the things about our community here, about the community of faith that we have in Christ Jesus, is that each one of us is going to undergo trials and sufferings, but if we do it together, and if we pray for each other and support one another, as Christians are called to in Scripture, then it makes the passage of suffering a little easier. It's not going to take it away completely, because Jesus didn't say he was going to take away your suffering completely. In fact, Jesus said that uh, as much as he was persecuted, you're going to be persecuted more. 
He said that we're going to suffer for the sake of his name. But he also said that we're going to be blessed when we suffer for the sake of his name. And so as we start this new year and this new sermon series, really all I want to do is put before you this question, what are you standing for? What are you willing to stand for? Are you willing to stand for the God who saved you? Are you willing to stand in the right way for the right things? Not when your own name is slandered, but when the name of God is mocked in your life. Are you willing to stand? Are you willing to not blaspheme his name? Are you willing to put a first in everything you do? I think we're going to sing there, do you hand on again? Giving, giving her time to find it, which is not a problem. Uh, we'll sing Dare to be Daniel, and then we're going to sing our benediction. But really, I want you just to, uh, as we're singing some of these words, we'll do uh, verse two verses again. Um, no, verse one, verse two. Uh, as we're singing these verses, I want you to ask yourself that question. Are you willing to stand? Are you willing to stand for God? Amen? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so difficult.